Well, we have been studying the purposes of the church. So remember, there's three purposes. I just put them up here to remind you of where we have been and where we're going today. So we, first of all, we saw there is a ministry to the world, to the unbelievers, the lost of this world. We are responsible to lead people to Christ, to make disciples of all nations. Second of all, we saw that uh, there's also a ministry to other Christians. You, you have a ministry to each other. You are to build each other up in the faith. We call that edification. But the ultimate purpose of the church is not those things. Those are very important. But the ultimate purpose of the church is to minister to God. How do we do that? We do that through worship. So let me just define what worship is so we're all on the same page here. Uh, Here's my working definition, and it's coming from an old English word, which we get our modern word worship from. The old English word is worth-ship. Worth-ship. And that should help us to understand the basic meaning of the word worship. So here's my working definition. Therefore, worship is acknowledging the unique worth of an object and showing honor and respect to it. Now, obviously, in this case, the object would be God. God is the one who is worthy of this unique... Well, He is unique worth, therefore He is worthy of honor and respect. Now, some synonyms that might help you to understand this are words like honor, respect, awe, adoration, reverence, and glorifying. All those things are are to be directed toward God. Now, why should we worship, though? Why? Why should we worship? Well, every Christian must practice biblical worship for at least three reasons. Uh, These are from various parts in your Bible. A lot of scriptures today, by the way. Uh, Some of them I've put on the screen. So try to stay with me here. But the first one is this. that God has repeatedly commanded us to worship Him. In fact, When Jesus was talking to Satan when he was out in the wilderness in Matthew 4, verse 10, here's what Jesus said. He quoted from the Old Testament when he said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So that's just one of many places that we could look at where we see God commands us to worship him and him only. Number two, second reason why we must practice biblical worship is that true worship confirms our salvation in Christ. Look what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. He was having this conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. At the time, she was an unbeliever. In John 4, verse 23, here's what Jesus says. The hour is coming and is now here when the True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, notice there is a, Jesus is showing a difference here between true worshipers, those who are really in Christ. The true believers in Christ are the true worshipers. The Father is seeking those people. So if you are a true worshiper, then that confirms what is going on inside you, in your heart, who who you are. Do you really love God? If you do, then you, you are a true worshiper, and it is evident in what you do, what you say, how you think. Number three, a, a third reason why we should worship is the absence of true worship and then the presence of false worship is going to arouse the terrifying judgment of a jealous God. Several times in Scripture, God says He is a jealous God. By the way, that is not a sin for Him to, to, to describe Himself that way because He is he's worthy of the worship that should be directed toward Him. Probably the clearest passage is this one here uh, in Romans 1, 18. Notice it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Against who? It's against these false, the false worship. 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So they're not worshiping God. They're worshiping something that is false. And then God goes on to say here in Romans 1, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So be careful. God is a jealous God who is worthy of worship. You do not want Him pouring out His wrath on you. So if the other ones don't work, sometimes the negative does for us. But, but notice there is such a thing as false worship. Okay? So there is such a thing as false worship. We can't say that all worship is true, genuine, right. So let's, let's look and see what Scripture says here about what is false worship. Number one, coming from the Ten Commandments, of course, the worship of false gods uh, would be an obvious one. Uh, you're familiar with Exodus 20, verse 3, when God says, You shall have no other gods before me. I have no other gods before me. So, the Bible calls the, the worship of false gods idolatry. Idolatry. And you say, well, what is idolatry? We, we don't want to limit idolatry to this misconception that it's only when, you know, you, you make some image out of stone or wood or metal and you bow down and worship that. A lot of people aren't doing that these days. So here, here's kind of the way I like to, to word it. What is idolatry? Well, it's when we allow anything other than God to become the center of our heart's true happiness. Uh, it becomes our contentment, our identity, our, our purpose, or even our security. If you're putting your security in anything other than God, that, that thing, that person becomes an idol. I like the way Pastor Tim Keller said it in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He quotes, Idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. Why do we ever lie or fail to love or keep promises or live selfishly? The specific, an the specific answer is always there is something besides Jesus Christ that you feel you must have to be happy. Something that is more important to your heart than God. The secret to change is always to identify the idols of the heart, end quote. Many people before me have wisely said, your, your heart is an idol factory. It's an idol factory. Watch out. Guard your heart. And I've been uh, studying from a course called Authentic Manhood, and I've, as I've been studying that, I've learned some of these deep idols of our heart, which sound, by the way, very similar to the way Scripture would put it, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You'll, you'll see a connection here to the three categories in 1 John 2, but he's, these are kind of uh, another way of saying the same thing. So what are the deep idols of the heart? Well, think of them like, a, like an iceberg. Obviously, in an iceberg, here's an example of one. Uh, you only see the tip of the iceberg, which is small in comparison to what's beneath. You've got to watch out for the, 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 the main part under the water. Get to the root issues of what's going on in your heart. You see, a lot of times we, we'll attack the, uh, the branches, what's sticking up, you know, the, the, uh, the low-lying fruit, if you will. But we never get to the root issues, the core issues. Here, here's some of the deep idols of our heart. Number one is comfort. Number two is going to be control. Number three is significance. Now, you're, you, you, you ask yourself, which one is the, the big temptation of my heart, of your heart? Now, maybe all three, but, uh, but certainly as I've been uh, studying people and counseling people, I notice there's, there's generally one of these that sticks out. Like, I've already pigeonholed everyone in my family and myself, and, and I've pretty much got each one of you already which one you are. You, you figure out which one you think you are here, okay? 
But the first one is comfort. Now here's the lie of the comfort idol. Here's the lie. I put it on the screen for you. The lie is, well, if I can just maintain physical ease or relaxation, if life can just be laid back, if I can just keep away from stress or responsibility, if I can just experience some pleasure or enjoyment in the moment, then life will be more fulfilling, easy, fun, or thrilling. There you go. Does that fit any of you? And so if, if, that, if that lie speaks to you and you say, whoa, man, I, man, I've preached that lie to myself a lot, well, then guess what? Your functional heaven is pleasure and ease. Your biggest fear is responsibility or boredom. And by the way, the way this is going to be played out in your life is you're, you're going to do everything you can to avoid stress and responsibility. So, someone who, whose deep idol of their heart is comfort, they're constantly consuming things uh, to, to try to ease their life in some ways. Because remember, they, what do they want to do? Avoid stress. They want life to be fun, thrilling, easy, fulfilling. So, it might be uh, food. So, they're uh, just constantly consuming food. Uh, it might be a different form. It might, for some people, it just they they can't get enough pornography. So pornography has become one of the biggest industries in our world today. A multi-billion-dollar industry. Why? Well, for a lot of people, their idol is comfort, and for others, it's just constant amusement. You know, their their drug of choice is is you know all the the hormones they get from, from their amusements, whatever they look like. So what's the solution you say? I'm going to give you a solution to every single one of these idols. Number one, the Bible always tells us when, when we have sin, we have an idol, we got to put it off. And in this place, it needs to be replaced. You put on something called the principle of replacement. So this idol needs to be smashed, and you have to find your pleasure not in those sort of things, but the pleasure must be found in serving Christ. It's not putting off the responsibility, but you're, you are responsible to serve Christ, to serve God's cause, Christ's cause. Jesus put it this way, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him. So it's, so it's the put off is you deny yourself, Jesus says, the responsibility is what? There's a cross for you to carry. But Jesus said in Matthew 11 that his burden is light, and he's going to be there with you, going with you. Kind of like two, two oxen, you know, joined together by the, uh, the yoke that goes over their neck and shoulders. Jesus is there with you. You're not alone. So deny yourself. Take up your cross. You have responsibility, and that's to follow him. The second deep idol of our heart is control. Control. Now here's the lie of the control idol. It says, well, if I can just maintain influence or mastery over this situation, these people, my performance, my schedule, my income, or whatever, then I'll be okay, content, strong, and safe. Some of you have that idol. And your functional heaven is having certainty or dominance. And therefore, your biggest fear is instability or weakness. And so the way you're going to see this played out in your life or a family member's life or a friend or whatever is, is there's this relentless pursuit of security. There's this excessive pursuit of power. So it'll, you'll see it in, in your security or your power struggle. And so what's the solution if your deep vital of your heart is control? Well, you need to recognize that, number one, you're not in control. That's, that is an illusion. That is not reality. You're living in a fantasy world. The Bible says put that off. Put it off. Stop acting like you're in control. Instead, you have to trust in the Lord with all your heart don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. 
God's in charge. He's in control. Stop trying to be in control of your life. It's an illusion anyway. And so, for some people, it's this, this excessive pursuit of power. One antidote, by the way, for this struggle for power is, the Bible calls it stewardship. Stewardship. You see, my friends, things are not given to you and me to control. Rather, God owns it all anyway. As Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, it belongs to him. So God gives it to us to be a steward. We're just the manager of all of his possessions. The third deep idol of our hearts is significance. Now, I'll be honest with you, this is the one that I struggle with. It has beat me up way too many times. And when I'm struggling at it, those deep, hard moments of my life, I want to just quit. I'm tempted to commit suicide, to be quite honest with you. That's how bad it can get for someone who struggles with the lie of significance, which goes like this. If this person, hey, this social group, the colleagues in my profession, if they find me worthy of attention or love, if they acknowledge my value or greatness, as long as I'm not being disgraced before then, then, then I'm going to be worthy, important, and acceptable. So someone who has this, this idol here of significance finds their identity often in what they do. Their whole identity is wrapped up in what they do. And if what they do falls apart, well, then their whole life is shattered and it all falls apart. So the functional heaven for this one is it's just receiving affirmation and being made to feel important. The biggest fear is rejection or humiliation. And the way that this idol is played out is through an overwhelming need for approval. Uh, the, the someone with this idol wants to feel loved all the time. They have this really strong desire for recognition. Very strong re- desire for recognition. That becomes their God. And so the solution is, well, usually what the Bible says is stop being a people pleaser, number one. Stop being a man pleaser, as Colossians 3 says. And instead... Where, where are we to find our, our significance from? Not from people, but from God. We're to seek God's pleasure, right? Seek to please the Lord. Find our identity in Christ. And so some of you, if you've walked around my house, you may have seen the plaque that I have found very helpful. One of the things I constantly have to preach to myself besides the gospel itself, is my identity in Christ. Who am I in Christ? See, that's, that's the gospel I have to preach to myself. But when I start talking, you know, start listening to myself, very dangerous, and I can fall prey to the idol of significance. So these are the things you're, gonna, you're probably going to be tempted by. And so, my friends, beware of these false gods. These are the ones you're probably going to struggle with. And they're going to tend to enslave you. Satan is quite happy, and that's exactly what Satan did with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. You'll find comfort, control, and significance there. Satan lying and deceiving them. Things with like, hey, you you can be like God. You'll be able to know good and evil and so forth, right? All these sort of things. Satan's trying to open their eyes to these false gods. And so, my friends, just like Satan, you need to beware because idols always overpromise and underdeliver. Always overpromise and underdeliver. So, beware of these false gods. And so, if we fall prey to them, we're not worshiping the true God, it's a false God. So, what's the second kind of false worship? Again, the Ten Commandments tells us the worship of the true God in a wrong form. So you can try to worship the right God, but in the wrong form. And that's why God says here in Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, an example of this would be the Israelites, after they had left Egypt and they had, they had come out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. You'll see a picture of, of what, what happened there at Mount Sinai. This is exactly what Israel did at Mount Sinai. They made this, this golden calf out of this gold they had taken out of Egypt. They paid homage uh, to this golden calf with their lips. They believed they were worshiping the true God. But what they had done was they had reduced God to an image. And God doesn't wish to be reduced to an image. Do you see that here in Exodus 20, verse 4? He says, don't, don't carve anything of an image trying to represent me. Nothing on the earth, nothing in the heavens, nothing in the water can accurately represent God. And that's why God says don't do that, because there is, <laughs> there is nothing in this universe that can accurately represent him. It will never do him justice. Never. Because he's holy. He is totally unique. So the second form of false worship here is, is worshiping the true God in the wrong form. Doesn't matter how genuine, sincere you might be. God says don't do that. Number three, the third way of, of false worship here is the worship of the true God in a self-styled manner. In other words, I'm just doing it my way. That's dangerous when you do it my way. Look at uh, you can keep your finger in Psalm, but look at Leviticus 10. Good example of some false worship here in Leviticus 10. So we have a couple priests by the name of uh, Nadab and Abihu. Apparently they had just recently become priests of God. And I'm assuming they were sincere. They're trying to worship the true God, but they did it in their way, not in the way God had told them to do this. It was their self-styled way. And, and so look what the Scripture says in Leviticus 10, verse 1. Verse 1, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and, offer, uh, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. What's the result? Verse 2, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified or set apart. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And so he should, even though they were his sons. And they died. Aaron's sons died. For this false worship. They were guilty of worshiping God in their own way. And God doesn't consider that acceptable. It doesn't matter how sincere or genuine you might be in that. That's still false worship. The last one of the false worship is that it's the worship of the true God in the right way. But God also cares about your attitude. So you can do it with a wrong attitude. So worship of the true God in the right way is the wrong attitude. So look what the last book in your Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, has to say about this one. God addresses the heart issue, the attitude behind Israel's worship. Malachi chapter 1. What I want you to notice here is Israel is worshiping God in a flippant way, a very careless way. So look at Malachi 1, verse 7. How are, how are they... Uh, well, they ask the question of, at the end of verse 6. How have we despised your name? Well, that's a good question. God answers that question, how they've despised his name. God says in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar... But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. So Israel's treating worship with flippancy. How? That's verse 8. Verse 8 says, 
when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? <laughs> so what's the problem here? Let's be clear. They, they're bringing sacrifices. That's a good thing. God told them to do that. But were they bringing their best? No. God told them to bring their best. They were supposed to be animals with no blemish, no spots, no broken bones and so forth. You know, don't, don't pick the one that's going to die tomorrow anyway. <laughs> that's kind of like what they're doing here. So they're demonstrating contempt for God, clear disobedience. I want you to see what God says in verse 10 about that. Verse 10, God says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. There you go. That's what God thinks about that. So it is possible to worship the right God, but with the wrong attitude. We need to be aware of these things. God has revealed himself in his word. He's told us how not to worship him. We need to know that, but God's also told us how to worship him. So let's look at the, the core of what is true worship. What is the core of true worship? Well, this, this might be obvious to you. I, I hope it is. But number one, the focus has to be on God. The focus is on God. So here we come to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. As we read, there's a lot of things going on in Psalm 95, but I, I, I want you to notice, number one, this is, this is all about corporate worship. Now, that doesn't mean you can't worship God you know, as, you're, as you're working through the week or as you're sitting in your chair at home. That's fine. You can worship God there. But th this particular passage here is one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture about corporate worship. And I want you to notice how often Yahweh is referred to here. By Yahweh, I mean Lord. So let's read Psalm 95. Verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts. And they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So did you notice how often the name Lord, which is Yahweh, is used there? There's a point to be made in that. It's this, that God is the sole object of worship. He is the dominant character in this drama of worship. And so the primary purpose of worship is to bring Him glory, pleasure, honor, respect, and awe. And so our interests, our needs, as important as those are, are not the dominant thing here. They are secondary in, in, to, in relationship to our worship to God. Unfortunately, we often approach corporate worship with our focus on something other than the person and glory of God. I mean, for example, here's the ones I've been guilty of. Uh, sometimes, even when I'm, you know, I'm in a corporate worship setting, I can be guilty of, 
of thinking primarily about how we're enjoying the service, how I might be enjoying this worship service. I might be thinking, wow, I like this song, or wow, I might be hearing people singing harmony, or I might like the way someone reads scripture, or I might be impressed with the way someone's praying and think, whoa, I'm really worshiping. Yeah, well, I'm missing the point, too, sometimes when I, when I do that. It's not about me. Another way this happens is we may be preoccupied with matters that have nothing to do with worship. Now, I might be thinking about the, uh, that really yummy uh, beef that, you know, and potatoes and carrots that I'm going to have for lunch in just a few minutes. Ooh, man, that's going to be good. Well, I'm not thinking about God when I'm thinking about the beef and the potatoes, right? I might be, I've done this before. I'm supposed to be worshiping God in a corporate setting, and I'm thinking about sports. Hmm. Or, you know, I might be, you might be looking across the, uh, the church at that pretty girl over there thinking, ooh, she's pretty, instead of thinking about how beautiful God is. Or I might be thinking about my appearance. You know, sometimes you might even sit there, and I've done this, you know, is my tie straight? And oh, there's a spot on my shoe, and you know, whatever. You know, you're thinking about other things, right? You're distracted from what, what you're really there for. Oh, we could go on and on. There's all sorts of trivialities. We get distracted by what we're really supposed to be doing. And so, if we're to worship in a biblical manner, we have to concentrate our minds and our hearts on the God for whom we're there to actually worship. So, if you're not thinking about Him, Anything else, no matter how good that is, then becomes false worship. The focus has to be on God. A second core of true worship is this, that the participants actively respond to God with their whole being. I'll explain the whole being there in a moment. But true worship involves an active response to God, not a passive one. Active. So rather than the the passive, just on-looking that uh, sometimes some people associate with uh, worship service is not really what God desires. And so, did you notice as we read here in Psalm 95 how worship is to be something you're to participate in? For example, if you look at verse 1, God's people are commanded to come physically, number one, to this corporate place of worship. And what are we to do when we, we come? We're to sing. <laughs> That's participation. You're physically involved in that. You're singing to the Lord. Verse 6, you're bowing down. You're kneeling. That's all physical, active participation. Verse 7, we're to hear his voice. You might think of that as passive, but that is an active thing. Hear his voice. Verse 8, don't harden your heart. And then when you come to chapter 96, there's, there's lots more things where we see you're to actively respond to God with your whole being. For example, look at verse 3. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. So declare His glory. To who? Everyone. Verse 4 is another one. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So God is to be feared. There's this reverential awe that he deserves. Uh, verse 8 says, hey, look what it says here. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. So bringing an offering is something physically active you're supposed to be doing is in your participation to God. Now, lest you miss the point, here's the point, my friends. You're not to be a pew potato. <laughs> it's kind of like a couch potato, but you don't have those nice comfy couches here, right? So, and we don't necessarily have pews either. But be it, right? Uh, in other words, don't be a chair potato. How's that? Don't be a chair potato where you just kind of sit and do nothing, passive, kind of just soak it in. No, God wants us to participate outwardly and physically in the service in whatever ways are appropriate, by the way. <laughs> there are inappropriate ways, inappropriate ways. May I suggest you learn the difference? Otherwise, it becomes false worship. 
But notice in the, um, the core of true worship, it includes the whole being, your whole being. See, you're not just an outward thing. There's stuff going on inside you, too. And so the inward part of our being must also be eagerly and sincerely involved in public worship. I want you to notice what Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John 4, verse 23. Jesus talks about the whole being involved in true worship here, John 4, 23, when he said, The hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now notice the, the balance that Jesus gives there, because this is interesting. If you read the greater context, the Samaritan woman was looking for the proper method of worship. And as far as she was concerned, she could only see two methods of worship. There's the, the Samaritan way at Gerizim, and then there's the Jewish Israel way down there in Jerusalem. You know, as far as she concerned, that's it. All she could see is two. But Jesus sets her up, well, actually, no, there's God's method for worship. See, as far as the Samaritans were concerned, there's the, uh, there's the spirit way of worshiping. And then, as far as she was concerned, well, then there's the Jewish way of worship, and that's the truth form of worship. So she's contrasting the spirit or the enthusiastic form of worship from this knowledge-based way of worshiping God. She's expecting Jesus to go with the knowledge-based. But no, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus shoots them both down and says, you can't worship God unless you worship in spirit and truth. It has to be both. So I put a little, uh, I, I didn't know how to do this, but anyway, I put it on the screen here for you, that Jesus is saying it's both, and there's the, the extreme dangers. So there's the Samaritan way and the Jewish way. So Jesus points out the Samaritan way, which is the enthusiastic heresy. <laughs> it's lacking in the truth, but man, they got the spirit part. They're enthusiastic. Right? So, so the Samaritan woman's thinking, well, that's how I worship God. Oh, but all you Jews down in Jerusalem, you're, uh, you're stuck in the barren orthodoxy mode of worship. In other words, it's, it's just full of knowledge, but man, there's no enthusiasm and passion for God. Well, that's what she thought. And by orthodoxy, I mean, I mean truth, knowledge of, of particularly the Bible in this case. Now, here's the problem. Enthusiastic heresy is heat without the light. And then, on the other hand, you got the barren orthodoxy. It's a lot of light, but no heat. <laughs> Not really doing anything. And we need to beware of both of those extremes. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't actually worship God unless it's enthusiastic orthodoxy. It's both spirit and truth. It's the zeal and the passion combined with the knowledge it has to be both. And by the way, the, those same two extremes that Jesus was addressing here are still existent today. You'll find them both. Plenty of wild, crazy churches out there, right? Very enthusiastic. You know, a lot going on, right? Uh, but filled with heresy. Uh, they've messed out, they've left out the truth part. You know, there are all kinds of groups that just get together and hold hands and swaying around and seeing these really loud bands and light shows and who knows what else going on, singing these songs, speaking ecstatic language and so forth. But they need truth. They're missing truth. Therefore, they're not worshiping God. And so you, can, you cannot fault them for their enthusiasm. We can certainly learn something from that. But far too often, it's just merely a, a bunch of zeal without the knowledge. But then on the other hand, the one we're probably more guilty of ourselves would be, would be the barren orthodoxy. And so these are people who hold firmly to sound doctrine. We love the theology of the Bible. We know it quite well, but we've lost the passion. 
we've lost the passion. Both are wrong. Both of those extremes are wrong. Jesus talked a lot about the, that kind of thing, particularly when he was addressing the Pharisees. And so we need to be uh, avoid becoming like these very people Jesus describes here in Mark chapter 7, verse 6. Look at this. Here's what Jesus said. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So notice they know the commandments, these doctrines, they know it, they know it well. Where's the heart? Where's the passion? There's no love for God. No love for God whatsoever. Well, I love the way Pastor John Piper illustrated this particular danger. He put it this way. If God's reality is displayed to us in his word or his world, and we do not then feel in our heart any grief or longing or hope or fear or awe or joy or gratitude or confidence, then we may dutifully sing and pray and recite and gesture as much as we like, but it will not be real worship. We cannot honor God if our heart is far from him. Worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. This cannot be done by mere acts of duty. It can be done only when spontaneous affections arise in the heart. And uh, if you read his book called Desiring God, which I recommend you do, I love the analogy he gives to kind of explain this. So he says, consider the analogy of a wedding anniversary. Imagine those of you who are married. Those of us who are married. I hope you didn't do this uh, on your recent wedding anniversary. But suppose you go and you buy your wife a dozen long stem roses for your anniversary. For those of you who aren't married, you, you can picture this, right? Buying roses for your beloved and then, then she, she meets you at the door, you hold out the roses, and, and your wife says, oh, they're beautiful, thank you. And then, and then, and then the spouse gives a big hug, and, and, then, and then you just kind of hold out your hand and you say, don't mention it, it's my duty. Well, what happens when you do that sort of thing? Well, it's not the exercise of duty, it's a noble thing. Do not we honor those we dutifully serve? Well, not much. Not if there's no heart in it. Dutiful roses are a contradiction in terms. If I'm not moved by a spontaneous affection for her as a person, the roses don't honor her. In fact, they belittle her. They are a very thin covering for the fact that she does not have the worth or beauty in my eyes to kindle affection. All I can muster is a calculated expression of marital duty. So the real duty of worship is not the outward duty to say or do the liturgy. It is the inward duty, this command of Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. That's a command. The command is delight yourself in the Lord. And the reason this is the real duty of worship is that this honors God while the empty performance of ritual does not. If I take my wife out for the evening on her anniversary and she asks me, why do you do this? Why do you do this? The answer that honors her most is because nothing makes me happier tonight than to be with you. It's my duty is a dishonor to her. It's my joy is an honor. Do you see the difference? Many of the Jews were guilty of doing the duty without the joy. They were not delighting themselves in the Lord. <laughs> and that's the problem Jesus had, particularly with the Sadducees and Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. Their heart was far from God. And so he just calls them a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Yeah, you guys make yourself look good on the outside, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones. Jesus wasn't impressed. So here's the point. For our worship to be fully pleasing to God, it's a full thing. Full. Everything. Spirit and truth. 
It must be motivated by joy, not just a mere duty. Yes, obedience is something very important to God. But the truest expression of worship occurs when your duty becomes delight. Let me ask you, as you do your duty for God and you're obeying Him, what's the heart motive behind it? Is it love? Are you doing that out of love? Or is there some other motive that's pushing what you do? Ask God to reveal that motive. Well, let's finish with looking at what are the elements of corporate worship? Notice I said corporate. So these are things the Bible prescribes for us to do as we come together as as a body of believers in Christ. Uh, This is, by the way, what I'm going to prescribe to you here has often been called the regulative principle. In other words, God has regulated what we're to do when we come together as believers. There are some Christians who think they can just go do whatever they want. It doesn't really matter what the Bible says. Hey, the Bible doesn't say I can't do that, so I'm going to do it. Man, that's dangerous. Very dangerous. Uh, So as someone who believes that the Bible, Scripture, is my only rule of faith and practice, I'm going to allow the Bible to regulate what I do in a corporate worship service. So here's, here's some elements we find in Scripture. Number one, we probably don't think about this enough, but we need to prepare for public worship. You need to prepare for public worship. Just, just like the priest of Israel, they had to prepare to go into the temple. And so you see this in Psalm 15. Have a look at Psalm 15. This, the right kind of participation in a worship service begins long before it actually starts. See, our attitudes and our actions during the week are often going to determine how you worship God on a Sunday. Are you actually going to please God in your worship or not? So the most important issue in this regard is whether we spend the week walking with God in godliness and holiness. In fact, in Psalm 15 here, look, uh, you look at the beginning. David asks the question, Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who's going to dwell in your holy hill? Verse 1, Psalm 15. By the way, even though those words refer primarily to our individual salvation and our sanctification, uh, there's this tabernacle imagery, temple imagery, that makes them applicable here to the subject of corporate worship. So with that little introduction, this psalm is going to help us to see what a true worshiper is. Look at... Psalm 15, verse 2. Here is how a true worshiper comes before God. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out money or put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Who does these things shall never be moved. What I want you to notice is this passage clearly indicates the quality of our worship in in church is dependent upon your very life. Is your life a life of integrity? Do you walk in integrity? In other words, are you godly? Those are just, that's not an exhaustive list there in Psalm 15, but are you striving to be blameless above reproach? That's what God calls us to be here. Another point we can make here is that we, we must worship God privately during the week if we want to please Him in our public worship. So you're, it's very pharisaical and hypocritical to. If you're not worshiping God in a true, genuine way throughout the week, and then you come on and put a mask on on a Sunday, you come to a corporate worship service, and you say, hey, I'm here to worship God. Here we go. Put on the mask. It doesn't work that way. So prepare yourself through the week for corporate worship. Number two. 
The second element of corporate worship is learn from the teaching of God's Word. Learn from the teaching of God's Word. Think about this. How often do we as listeners learn very little when we hear the Word proclaimed and preached and taught? Well, let me put it to you just bluntly, okay? That's unacceptable to God. It displeases God because God himself has placed uh, the teaching of his word at the forefront of corporate worship. Biblical worship's always involved hearing from God. For example, boy, there's a lot of examples. One of the four core activities of the local church in Acts 2.42 there was what? That they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In Acts chapter 5, it says, daily in the temple, in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. That's verse 42 again of Acts 5. So that's, that's just demonstrating what they did in the early church. Good model, by the way. And so hearing the word of God properly is a scriptural responsibility on everyone's part. In fact, listen to what Jesus said. I'll give you three different verses. Jesus said in Matthew 13, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Mark chapter 4, Jesus said, Take heed what you hear, the content. He says, Pay attention to the content, what you hear. Luke chapter 8, Jesus says, Take heed how you hear. He also cares how you hear. So the word of God is to be uh, important, ultimate, in, in particularly in regards to public worship. Another way we can worship God in a corporate setting is we can pray with and for the church. Another one of the core activities of the local church in Acts 2.42 was prayer. And so, may, may I just point out something? When, when you're in a corporate setting, usually not everyone's praying at the same time, but having said that, I have been in church services in the Pacific Islands where they do that sort of thing. And they'll have a moment of, of corporate worship uh, uh, in prayer, and everyone's asked to pray all at the same time. And it sounds kind of cool. It sounds like one giant beehive where everyone's talking out loud. And the first time I experienced that, I was like, I was so overwhelmed, I couldn't even say anything. I'm like, whoa. It was a special moment. But usually we don't do that sort of thing, and usually there's one person who, who leads us, and so it's appropriate, and that's okay for that to happen. But I hope as that individual is praying, you're praying with them. And let me encourage you, by the way, when they finish praying, to say amen, if, if you agree with what they just prayed, that is. Everybody needs to participate when someone is leading us in prayer. But don't just sit there and be a chair potato in that situation, okay? You, you know you're supposed to pray. You know it's okay for somebody else to pray and, and lead you in prayer, but sometimes we can get distracted. Another element of corporate worship is singing to each other and to the Lord. Notice it's both, by the way. Because look what Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says. It has both of these aspects, which says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, what, what does it look like? That's a command, be filled with the Spirit. It's not optional. How do I do that? How do you do that? Well, notice there's a lot of ing words here. Those ing words are Greek participles telling you how to obey the command of be filled, be controlled by the Spirit, allow Him to control you. Well, here's how you do it. In this context, it says addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. So Ephesians there represents this twofold role that music has always played in corporate worship. You can see that going all the way back. First of all, notice it's provided challenges and encouragement to the church. That's what one of music is so powerful. So let me encourage you, sing to your other believers who are sitting around you. Sing to each other. 
what the Bible says to do. You're addressing each other through the singing. But may it challenge others and encourage them. But of, of course, you know, it also provides praises and petitions to God. You're praising God. You're, you're, you're bringing your prayers before Him, even in your singing to Him. Totally appropriate. So you really have two audiences as you sing. You're singing to each other, and you're singing to God. Don't leave either one out. All right, Do both. Another way to worship in a corporate setting is observe the ordinances. Yes, you can observe the ordinances of worship. And as you do so, you're actually worshiping. Hopefully you know God's established two ordinances under his new covenant. Of course, we're referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Unfortunately, though, many professing Christians seem to think that these are just, well, you know, they're suggestions. It doesn't matter if I take or leave them. Uh, they seem to be, some, sometimes, you know, there's other things more exciting that trumps baptism and Lord's Supper. Well, actually, these things have been designed by God, ordained by God as a part of our worship. Should be essential elements of the corporate worship in the church. So, let me just remind you, these are important and as we do them, you're, you're participating in it. Even if, you're, if you're, you're there just witnessing, you're still a participant. And you, you need to be thinking of yourself as a worshiper of God as you observe a baptism and as you're partaking in the Lord's Supper. And the last way we can worship God in corporate worship is we can give to the Lord and His church. These are all things prescribed in Scripture. And so giving of our financial resources uh, to the Lord is both a solemn duty as well as a wonderful privilege. I hope you see it as both. You say, well, how is it a duty? Well, it's a duty because God commands us to give of some of our uh, of, of His resources back to Him. But it's also a wonderful privilege as we give because... Uh, God's pleasure and blessing rest upon those who give generously to Him. Very interesting that the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 35, the Bible says this, supposedly, quoting Jesus, since that's what it says, because it says in Acts 20, 35, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, since Jesus said that, I believe it. I hope you've experienced that, by the way. What a wonderful privilege God's given to us. Nothing we have belongs to us anyway. Isn't it nice He lets us keep most of it? <laughs> Very kind and loving of Him to do so. But at the same time, He blesses us when we do give to Him and to His church. And so, my friends... These are the prescribed ways that he has regulated that we can worship in a corporate setting. So we've, we've, we've seen how we can worship God. We've seen how, what, what false worship is, how not to worship God. And so I, I, hopefully, hopefully we've learned how we can worship God, how we can properly minister to him. Now here's my question for you. What are you going to do with it? Don't be a hearer only be a doer of the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for revealing worship, what is false, what is true. We're thankful that it is clearly something that's active, that we can do uh, outwardly as well as inwardly. We're thankful that it can be a thing done in private as well as corporately in a church service. So may we understand the difference and may we be people who worship you 24-7 all the time. May it not just be a duty, may it be a delight. Cause us to have this joy and this passion and love for you. May we delight ourselves in the Lord. May we understand that we're not really pleasing you if 
if it's just a bunch of duty. May you also understand it's not, it's not really pleasing you if we're filled with a bunch of enthusiasm, but it's heresy. May we be people who worship in spirit and truth, well-balanced in that way, so we'd be true worshipers of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.